So in any group of people, whether we're talking about a classroom or an apartment building or a whole country, we're going to have a lot of variation in terms of people's cognition and learning and experiences. And that's what neurodiversity is all about. It is a biological fact about brain differences. As vozes do professor. Teachers' voices. Welcome to a new episode of Teachers' Voices. I'm your host, Nina Alonso, and today we are talking about neurodiversity. What do we understand by that term? And what kind of support and behaviors can help shift attitudes towards positivity and acceptance around diversity within the classroom and school? On our last episode, I talked to you from a school in a remote area of Paraguay. I'm not done with my Latin American travels yet, and today I'm recording from Brazil. Today, instead of being in a forest, I'm in an urban location, recording from a megacity, Sao Paulo. And while my dear partners at Bold are surrounded by snow in Switzerland, The weather here is hot and humid. I hope the noise of the air conditioning doesn't bother you. Again, no dogs in this episode because my beloved Indy is in Spain, but I have several cats around me, Brandon, John, and Oji. And they are huge, actually. They're super big, mainly John. I'm making the most of being here by interviewing Silvana Gili, an experienced primary school teacher working in an international school. In addition to her role as a teacher, Silvana has years in school, coordinating roles, so she has a wide perspective of how her school approaches inclusivity. We will hear from her soon. To hear varied experiences and thoughts from teachers in different contexts, I asked for help in the Teachers' Voices WhatsApp group. The result was a thought-provoking exchange of messages. I will share snippets of these conversations and a summary of the highlights from the teachers' answers at the end of the episode. First, to clarify some concepts, we start our journey in Scotland. Alisa Alcorn, lead researcher of a program called LEANS, which stands for Learning About Neurodiversity at School at the University of Edinburgh, welcomes us. Hi, good morning. Uh, I'm uh, not 100% awake, but I'll see what I can do here. I'm in my kitchen and it's absolutely pouring rain outside, so I'm quite okay with being inside and dry here for the minute. Alisa, for the past few years, you have worked on a project to explain what neurodiversity is to children. How do you define neurodiversity? So I'm going to start with the kind of definition we use talking to primary school children, which says that we are all different in how we think and feel and learn because our brains process information differently. And that neurodiversity is something that concerns everyone because everyone has a brain. So the really important phrase in there is information processing, but it really refers to most of the things that our brains are doing all the time with the information from the environment and the information from within our own bodies. In addition to hearing about neurodiversity, I have also heard the term neurodivergent. What does it mean? Neurodiversity, like any other type of diversity, is the property of a group of people. We can't say that one person is neurodiverse or culturally diverse or any other kind of diversity. Neurodiversity is the group. But within the group, we're likely to have majorities and, and minorities in terms of people's cognition and information processing. 
And we'd usually talk about the people who are in the majority, their processing is very similar to one another as being neurotypical people. And the whole world is kind of set up to accommodate neurotypical people the best. However, in any group, we're also going to have minorities in terms of their cognition. And sometimes we talk about those people as being neurodivergent. And divergent doesn't mean bad here. It simply means that they are different. And right now, when people are much more familiar with uh, medicalized diagnoses like ADHD or dyslexia or autism, people often equate these things. But neurodivergence is not about having a diagnosis. It means that you're different from the majority in terms of your processing. Can you explain how neurodiversity differs from neurodevelopmental disorders? People sometimes use the word neurodiversity to refer both to this biological fact about processing differences, but also to refer to something called the neurodiversity paradigm. And the neurodiversity paradigm is a viewpoint or a perspective on neurodiversity. A couple of key things that this paradigm says is first that this type of diversity occurs naturally in the population. It's not good or bad, it's just there. And also that rejects value judgment saying that certain types of processing or cognition are good or normal and other types are bad or unhealthy or disordered. So really the neurodiversity paradigm is coming from a completely different viewpoint than the medicalized tradition and viewpoint that leads us to a concept like neurodevelopmental disorders. Neurodiversity, we'd say, well, it doesn't make sense to talk about disordered development. Being different is not bad. Being different is not an illness. That's interesting. I see a lot of people in the education field talking about diagnoses like ADHD, autism, and others. And I have heard from teachers in our WhatsApp group, and I have experienced as a parent, that the school will often only agree to provide extra support for neurodivergent children when they have received a diagnosis. Are people well informed about this neurodiversity paradigm you're describing? Right now, we've got kind of a, an awkward situation where fewer people are familiar with the terminology of neurodiversity and neurodivergence and the viewpoint of the neurodiversity paradigm. More people are familiar with neurodevelopmental diagnoses, such as autism or ADHD or Tourette syndrome. Right now, we're kind of awkwardly bridging the gap in the middle, saying, yes, people who have these diagnoses may be neurodivergent, may have minority processing types. They're not disordered. And also neurodivergence isn't about having a diagnosis. So what does neurodiversity look like in the classroom? It looks like everybody's classroom right now. We sometimes hear about neurodiversity and think that this is a, a new thing that's arrived on the scene, but that's really not true. It's something that's been there all along, but now people are increasingly paying attention to it and talking about it. So unless you're homeschooling, almost any group of children, any group of people is going to be a neurodiverse group. So every classroom is going to be a neurodiverse classroom. We will come back to Elisa later as she will share some actions, tips and advice for teachers to make their classrooms more inclusive to neurodiverse children. Now, to hear more about neurodiversity in classrooms, we are going to visit Silvana. 
Silvana is currently on her holiday because the new school year in Brazil only starts in February, so she welcomes me at home. Hi, my name is Silvana. I am a first grade teacher, so I teach six and seven-year-olds in an international school in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Uh, classrooms are very large. We have lots of trees and plants. It's It's quite beautiful. And because of class size and low number of students, we also have ways to organize our classrooms to attend to different needs and learning styles. Silvana, as we discussed before we started recording, you work in a quite privileged school that is fortunate to have many resources. Can you tell me about the work you've been doing around diversity? So for the past two years, we have done quite a lot of work on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. We, as a school, believe that students can only learn if they feel like they belong to that learning community. And because of that, we have really dedicated ourselves to understanding what this diversity means in all realms and spheres. We, as a school, focus a lot of our instruction on meeting students where they're at so that we can give them what they need for being successful as a person. We believe that we can only truly learn deeply when we feel comfortable and secure in the environment that we're in. So that's what we strive for. We actually have a whole department that is responsible for monitoring and accompanying students of diverse needs. But classroom teachers are trained and they are encouraged to make any kind of adaptation necessary to give students the appropriate kind of support. Sometimes even the curriculum is adapted to ensure that the students are given a chance to be academically successful. Can you offer help and adaptations to all children that might need extra help? Or is there any protocol in your classroom that requires a diagnosis? We don't only service students who are diagnosed. We believe if a child is exhibiting any kind of difficulty, we have to give them our attention and more than trying to find out what's behind that specific difficulty, although that is useful, obviously, we believe that we have tools that we can pull from our toolbox that can help students in different contexts. The more we know about students and how they learn, the more effective we can be as teachers. So a great focus and a great chunk of time in the first grade level in elementary school is early literacy and early math literacy as well. I work mostly with small groups of students. We use a workshop model in which we do mini lessons, but we also follow an inquiry approach especially in math, for example. We don't always follow the I do, we do, you do model because we want to give students a chance of giving us and showing us what they already know. And also 
we want students to learn more about themselves and develop their metacognitive skills by trying to figure out a problem just using the tools that they already have. So in a way, that's for us a manner to assess students as well. I organize the students in small groups, and these groups are not always, I should say, grouped by ability. And we know that children develop their literacy skills at different rates. I want to make sure that I have varied groups and that children have a chance to work with students that have maybe the same kind of interest or the same kind of, I don't know, sometimes even personalities. We learn from Vygotsky that we learn best from each other, right? So I try to put that in practice all the time. But having clear goals is essential. It is important that I always have time to conference with students, sometimes individually, and then again, sometimes in small groups. They're very young. They're only six and seven. They're already learning to determine next steps for themselves. And that's a way for us to also cater for students who have specific needs. Every year, we have students in every classroom who exhibit difficulties with executive function and self-regulation skills. And the most important for us, I believe, is to ensure that those children feel comfortable in the group that they're at. That's sometimes a little challenging. In a school that values belonging, the most important for us is to know that if the child feels like they belong to that group and that their needs will be catered for. So we work very closely with the department responsible for special services and with the school counselor who monitors these kids. We are in constant contact with families and we're being very consistent in what we're offering each child. At Silvanos School, the teachers work from the idea that neurodiversity is the norm. It is seen in every classroom and their daily practice takes that into account. In other parts of the world, other well-resourced schools take inclusivity seriously. Here's what Chista Dingra from India shared with us in the WhatsApp group. Hello everyone, this is Cheshta from uh, Haryana, India, working with an IB school. So yes, we do have uh, inclusive education in our school and uh, being an IB educator, I also cater to some of the students with some different needs. And our school has a great support provide to all these students with the different abilities and needs. We have a concept of a shadow teacher, which is like a student uh, with the needs will be accompanied with the teacher. This is one concept which we follow. Other than that, we have a tool which teachers are being trained, which is universal design of learning. If you haven't heard, I will really encourage you to go for that UDL. UDL gives quick guidelines to all the teachers, which provides great opportunity to plan lessons, learning engagements, and much more flexible assessments, 
which provides equal opportunities to all the children considering their needs it works on a three basic principles considering under that so how the child will be representing what kind of engagements will be planned by the teacher what resources will be useful so it's a detailed study on it and it's quite useful in our school to plan we also have individual educational plan for everyone which it's kind of a document we maintain in the beginning of the year it continues throughout the year based on the needs and the goals made for the students and how the things are working Tistan Silvana work in well resourced schools their experiences are unfortunately not representative of most schools In fact, many of the teachers in our WhatsApp group who come from very different contexts say they lack the resources they need to really adapt to the needs of all children. Actually, we did a little poll in our WhatsApp group and half of the teachers answered that they really would need more support from their schools. Let's not forget that under-resourced schools are the majority in global terms, but even in some Western contexts, where schools are not overcrowded, teachers still report that training and resources are not there. For instance, Ines Bertoni from Argentina explains that she has had different experiences in different schools, but that in Argentina there is a lot of work and changes in attitudes still needed to make schools truly inclusive. Last year I had the opportunity to work in two different private schools here in Argentina, In one of the schools, despite having a considerable number of students requiring special support, due to various difficulties, the lack of resources, class sizes, made it challenging to provide the necessary assistance. Dedicating enough time to each student, especially in a complex subject like the one I teach, which is chemistry, proved to be quite difficult. On the contrary, my experience in the other school was much positive with a single class division and fewer students. I've only encountered two challenging cases. Uh, the support that I received from uh, either teachers and school administrators made my job more manageable and comfortable. More support from the school can involve a deeper and more consistent school engagement process to making classrooms more inclusive. These things are not easily changed, as Alisa highlights, but there are accessible steps all teachers could start taking to help schools and even education systems to realize that all classes will always have children who would benefit from adaptations. And I do want to reassure everyone that there are positive changes you can make on a short or medium time scale and that some of them are very cheap or even free. But if you're looking around your classroom, one big question to ask is, are there supports that might currently be available by special arrangement to certain children who could potentially be available to everyone if they feel they need to use them. For example, if you might provide written instructions for tasks to certain children, could you make some more copies available to everyone? Could you make a big visual schedule that shows everyone in the classroom what's coming? Some pupils will look at it and find it helpful. 
Others might ignore it, and that's okay, but it's now there for everyone to use without special arrangement, without asking permission. And once you start thinking about things like that, you may find more and more of them. Another completely free change is something like turning on subtitling or closed captioning by default for any videos that you show, no matter how short they are, to support people who may need that. And there may be people who benefit from that support who wouldn't have thought that it would help them. They wouldn't have thought to ask for it. Alisa, what other positive actions can teachers take in the classroom? One of the most important ways that you can seek to support people and accommodate people is to expect that diversity. Because right now, I think in many parts of the world, school systems kind of assume that children will be very similar to one another. We're often talking about exceptions, accommodations, Uh, supports as though this type of diversity is only handled by special arrangement rather than it's going to be a, a business as usual part of the classroom. So I think even starting to shift your planning to expect differences can sometimes lead to some important changes and also working on knowledge of neurodiversity for everybody in the classroom. So I would really encourage individual teachers and schools to look at whether they can improve understanding of neurodevelopmental differences within their class. Everyone in the school community, not only neurodivergent pupils and staff, not only people with diagnoses, what everyone knows matters because everyone is making choices at school that affect one another. So working on knowledge and attitudes is something that every classroom in school could try to do in one way or another. The contributions of teachers in our WhatsApp group show that teachers can be truly agents of change. They can change mentalities. They can change behaviors. Doing simple steps in line with this idea of teachers as agents of change, let's hear one final piece of advice from Alisa. If you're a teacher or other educator listening to this podcast, it may be because you already have a little bit of knowledge about neurodiversity and neurodivergence. This is a topic that interests you. And you may be thinking of some of your other colleagues in that this is maybe not a topic that's of huge interest to them. It can really matter to try to start opening up conversations about neurodiversity for the first time. And this is a long distance race here. This is the kind of thing where you're unlikely to change radically people's knowledge or attitudes in one conversation, but it can be worth it to try to start getting it on the staff meeting agenda, proposing training related to neurodiversity and neurodivergence. That's always the first step I tell people is to try to get neurodiversity on the agenda. And some of the advice I tend to give here is to try to make connections to hot topics and buzzwords and big issues that are already happening in your area. So if, for example, well-being is a big topic or a big buzzword where you are, you might be making arguments to people that link neurodiversity understanding and stigma to well-being. So you might be making an argument saying, we can do something to support the well-being of this significant minority of children and young people if we are talking about this topic, if we are investing in training, if we're making different day-to-day -day choices in the classroom. I see it in under-resourced communities when, of course, obtaining a diagnosis is completely out of question because they don't even have psychologists or psychiatrists or anything in their community. It's the will of the teachers 
that makes a difference. So imagine teachers teaching in a refugee camp or teachers teaching in communities with harsh realities. They know already that some students might be experiencing travel and even cognitive difficulties, and they don't even care why. They just think, okay, some of my students might be different grabbing some concepts. And these teachers in these under-resourced communities or in, in unprivileged settings, they know, I just care about my children, I just care about my students, and that they have needs. And some are different. For whatever reason, I just need to cater for the needs. Be inclusive. I hope you found Alisa's advice interesting and useful. Thanks for listening to Teachers Voices. You can find out about our guests today in the show notes. We always like to hear from you, so please get in touch. What do you think about the issues we have discussed here? Are there experiences you would like to share? You can engage with us in conversations on social media and by joining our WhatsApp group. Please don't forget to follow us and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. 